1: Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show on an afternoon and not the morning on a Tuesday. I am so excited to be here with you all and to have a repeat guest who I just love and adore on the show. Jay McBain is back. The last time he was on the show was July of 2020, shortly after I switched over to using Restream and doing live streaming. So I'm excited to have him back on because the last episode that I did with him, we talked about customer obsession, journey mapping, and the future of business. And COVID was really entrenching, but more than that, nobody was really sure what was going to happen. And it's always fun having Jay on the show because I never know where the conversation is going to lead. So let me welcome Jay onto the stream Mm -hmm. and say thank you once again for always being willing to come on the show.
0: Well, thank you for having me back. It's an honor to be a repeat guest.
1: Yeah, and there's not very many of my guests that I like to have back on because normally it's like one topic and that's kind of it, but you are definitely one of those people, Jay, that I just love having on because I never know where the conversation is gonna go. <laughs> so I wanna dive right in because we have so much to do and I know you have a hard stop as well. You work for Forrester, who is considered one of the leading companies with thinking outside the box, thinking where the future is going to go. And before you were even with Forrester, you were known as one, you know, renowned, actually, as somebody who was a futurist, somebody who took data, constantly was scanning what was going on in the world and making predictions and having them come true. So I just want to throw out. An open-ended question on what are your thoughts about what you've seen happen and what are the trends that you're seeing in business that people really need to start thinking about?
0: Yeah, thank you for that introduction. And I think it goes back 27 years when I joined the World Future Society and, you know, started this idea. And the one thing I learned about being a futurist um, is that it's not about a crystal ball. It's not about, you know, trying to guess. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? It's about taking trends and things that are underway, you know, trains that are leaving the station and trying to connect dots at a level of scale, taking in the industry chatter, following the conversations, looking at what vendors and distribution and all kinds of companies in every industry are doing, and then bringing it back to why do we care? What does it matter? You know, all these kind of you know questions going forward. So that's that's kind of the, the point. And a lot of what I publish are the watering holes that a lot of these conversations are happening in. So 143 different social groups or 100 podcasts like this one around the world that people are engaged in listening and, and contributing and collaborating inside these communities, the media and events and all these other things going on. So I try to keep my ear to the ground as much as possible. I'm watching, you know, trends as they develop, and before I go and make a, you know, major prediction at the end of the year that this is going to have a major impact, I, I try to get enough data, enough conversations with enough leaders in the in the uh, in the world uh, to to see where it's really going.
1: You talk about you know all these different places you're looking and you make it sound really simple to look at all of these data points and put them into some sort of, oh, this is what I'm seeing. But yet I talk to my clients all the time. I talk to friends in, in tech, friends who have different businesses not in tech. Um, you know, I'm a geek, always a geek. And I see how so many seem to not see signs that are right in front of them. So what is it that triggers that moment for you, Jay, where you go, oh, that's important?
0: Yeah, so let's use an example of something that just happened that I think is going to be really important and material for for all your listeners. You know, a few months ago, Google and Apple two of the biggest tech companies in the world, but more than just being tech companies, they have 99% mobile share. Your phone is either an Android phone or an Apple phone. They also have 86% share of browsing. So I don't care what kind of laptop or desktop you use, you are browsing through Safari or Chrome 86% of the time. So two monumentally important companies to every company in every industry came up with privacy religion. They announced the end of cookies. They announced the end of targeting and tracing and all these tracker pixels and all this stuff. And this trend actually goes back 14 years. But it's pretty much been on the back burner where we all got our first social media accounts, you know, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever we are, you know probably uh, over a decade ago. But over time, and it's taken elections, it's taken a pandemic, You know, this is becoming pretty heavy on many people's shoulders in, in terms of you becoming the product. The private information that you're sharing is being consumed and harvested by others. And it's in a lot of cases being used against you. So society, it built, it built, it built, and then it kind of exploded where I'm done being the product. And so fast forward to this year, Google, who built half their business on harvesting your private data, made the announcement, but they see a brighter, you know, bigger opportunities ahead to build other businesses that doesn't rely on your personal data. Apple didn't really have uh, a strong, because they don't build their business model around uh, advertising or using personal data. They sell hardware and, and software and things. So. Those two companies, you know, came to this decision and now it's a front burner issue for everyone. And now we get to look at what would be the ramifications of this and how is it going to play out for the next 10 years? And again, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, it plays a big role because we understand that we talked about last time this buyer is changing fast. The pandemic is accelerating these changes of psychology. And behavior in buying journeys, and we're getting better at understanding in our own lives, you know, how we buy a car versus how we buy a mattress versus how we buy software versus how we buy a toothbrush, you know, considered and non-considered purchases. But suffice it to say, on average, we spend 28 moments buying something that is of value, of of a constant okay. purchase. Think about the last time you bought a car. And where you started, and the moments you went through before hitting the dealership, I'll let you know that there's 365 kinds of cars. So you had to whittle 365, which is one for every day of the year, down to you know kind of the one or two that you were, you know, on your short list. Right. As you went through that work, you were watching videos. You were probably on social media. You were maybe reading magazines, talking to your neighbor. You were, you know, doing all these things, 28 different moments on average digitally to get smart. So when you actually arrived at the dealership, you knew more about that car than the salesperson did. You know, the invoice price, you know, the back end rebates. You're pretty smart. You're probably to the point where within a hundred dollars, you know what you're going to walk out of that dealership spending. Right. They sit you down for eight hours still and take you through the getting you the deal. It's kind of the broken physical process after a pretty clean digital process. But companies are getting smarter now about those 28 moments and the fact that they don't own very many of those moments. And it's partnerships. It's the people that own those moments. It's the thing you read online. It's the video you watched. It's the event you went to, the car show. Those owners are critical at moving you from an influential perspective from 365 cars down to the one you bought.
1: Right. Now, did you watch the Emmys the other night?
0: I didn't invest all the hours, but I went in digitally after and watched all the clips of the broken comedy bits. I okay. watched the great speeches. I watched the not so great speeches. So it took me 20 minutes you know, to, to watch a three hour show. So I, I think I got the summary.
1: OK. The- The people who won the Queen's Gambit, he got on stage and one of my former clients uh, is Ed Keller and he's written books on word of mouth advertising and how important word of mouth is. And so one of those 28 moments that you talked about, the the winners for the Queen's Gambit thanked word of mouth for bringing them to the moment where the Queen's Gambit won um, the the Emmy. And for it being such a huge hit on Netflix, because there wasn't a lot of advertising, word of mouth really took it to the layers it did. So when I I hear you talking about the car process and the 28 points and, and trying to own all those different processes, when word of mouth is still such a critical factor in so much of the buying process, how do, you, how do these vendors control word of mouth? I mean, I look at Google and Apple and what you were just talking about. I know there's something in it for them by saying, okay, we're stopping this industry that we created. We're stopping the monster. Because now they've been, in my opinion, they've been exposed, right? And it's gotten to the point where, okay, we have to back off. We've raked in all the data we need. So now we can do other things. They're ahead of the curve because they designed the curve. So looking at those pieces, Jay, how does that lay into what you were just talking about?
0: Yeah, so one of my favorite books of all time uh, is Malcolm Gladwell and the Tipping Point. Oh, great And book. it, it kind of looks adjacently at all the factors. And if you were to go back in history and you know, look at Queen's Gambit and say, would that show have been as successful on Amazon Prime, Hulu, you know, Disney Plus, Netflix. The first thing is, you know, Netflix is the biggest platform. So right away from a distribution or wholesale perspective, they got introduced in terms of a catalog or, a you know, a product availability in front of hundreds of millions of very active users. Right. So if you're reaching the tipping point or these early moments, it already, you know, hit a a strong single by getting on the best platform. And now how do things tip? The set of influencers and super connectors and mavens and all the elements necessary to create a movement. And the Queen's Gambit actually was able to solve for so many of those angles. It was the right show at that time of the pandemic. It was when everybody was at home consuming lots of obviously And looking for something new we were in lockdown as well by the way i mean there was no nothing open at that time so even if you know you would have not normally gone to a a show about chess you know maybe even a game you've never played the fact is is the boredom part of it and the timing and this is back to the tipping point again is they didn't control the timing of the release you know they got it onto the big platform so there are so many elements that went beyond the writing the creative, the acting, all the things that won them the Emmys, there were so many things that needed to happen in concert with that. I will say as an analyst and somebody who follows breadcrumbs and watches a lot of chatter, there was a big moment for Queen's Gamut though, right in the acceptance speech. And there was a really powerful moment there of talking about um, feminism, females in chess, knocking down barriers, you know, breaking glass ceilings. But a mistake was made in that same acceptance speech earlier on, which said, you know, this actress is bringing sexy back to chess. So they objectified a female based on her looks to then make the point that um, maybe because of those looks, she broke the glass ceiling. And so this was one of those, and now this is the chatter, is it was a powerful moment that with some unconscious bias or with some flippant joke neutralized the whole thing yeah and what would have been maybe you know taking this wonderful show and wonderful statement and then launching it into you know the history of 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 great turning points you know and- got damaged by uh, you know uh, an ill-spoken Acceptance speech
1: in a full of emotion while there's a lawsuit because they Literally put one of the wrong facts into the movie that wasn't into the series It wasn't even in the book. It was correct in the book and it was an easily fact-checked thing about these same women of chess That they wanted to make this character look even better But why would you take a fact and make it wrong? so looking at that Jay and looking at people around the world saying all right we have to get back to to business somehow to life somehow we can't just keep in lockdown because frankly there are tons of businesses that just started during covid that understood the online models or were selling masks or selling something right these people were making millions and millions of dollars and brick and mortar businesses that didn't have, didn't make that shift because they thought perhaps COVID wasn't going to last that long and they could just hang out for a couple of months. Restaurants who are still struggling. We have restaurants here that can't open because they have no staff. Okay. Mm -hmm. At some point, I don't like the term new normal. I don't like the term normal because Our lives the last 50 years have changed every year. Something radical shifts. I I just wrote an article for Vero's Voice magazine about what's happened in the tech industry since the iPhone came out in 2007. And nobody saw that coming except Apple and, and jobs and stuff. And then all these other industries created. Well, COVID changed that whole paradigm and paradox. What do you think is going to happen next? I mean, how are people going to take this? People that made money during COVID, do you think they'll continue to make money as buildings start opening up, as businesses start going back out and events start happening and airfare starts going all over the place?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. But
1: predicting
0: the future is not predicting, like you said, a single normal. Right. It's just layers of of new challenges and and new opportunities. And entrepreneurial, you know, spirits. You know, we've seen uh, people, obviously, in restaurants and travel and tourism, you know, get hit with the opposite amount of factors that the Queen's Gambit did. You know, amount of headwinds that no great leadership or no great insight or foresight you know could have countered. It was a time to hunker down and you know hopefully with some good you know reasonable leases and other things try to um, you know get through the the period and now with Delta variant and most of us are pretty shell-shocked we're trying to you know it's like a hurricane now we're trying to think what's the E variant going to be what's the F variant going to be and where are they forming in the Atlantic at this point so There's a point of PTSD now that the Delta for many people isn't a light at the end of the tunnel. It's just the next thing. Right. And so, you know, given how political this has become and given how the story of that restaurant, whichever one of the 50 states or provinces or countries that it is around the world, there's just so many outside influences or outside uh, parts of the story that they don't control. And so, you, you know, you look inside to see, hey, what can I control? And, you know, how can I alleviate this shortage of people? How can I alleviate this pretty de- de- um, divisive, you know, mask wearing or vaccination? I mean, there's so many things that the more moments you spend thinking about that are the less moments you're thinking about what you can control. And, you know, given the local regulations, legislation, all the new compliance levels and things like that, uh, you work within the environment that you're given and you try to be one of the top 10 or top 20% restaurants, you know, given your focus on what you can control.
1: It just made me think as you were talking about that, what happened in New York City at uh, a restaurant that I used to go to very frequently when when i used to live up there and i'd go to the theater and you'd go to carmines and this hostess gets attacked because she the state the city requires vaccination proof and some tourist or somebody went ballistic on her and that's not something that anybody at least in the united states in in civility you would expect to happen. And I see this with a number of businesses. There's almost a a fear of, because of the political nature of everything that's been going on, well, we want to do what's right by our staff and protect them, but we could lose customers if we say, well, this is our policy on whatever. How to? those all things get taken into account. You know, my feelings with business are you have to do what's right for you and your business. There is plenty of clients out there. If you have such a small client base that you're going to lose some because of what you're doing to protect you and your business, then perhaps you need to expand your client base. But I know it's, it's a big thing. You're probably seeing it in the tech industry a lot jay i mean you and i have lots of friends that i had a, a neighbor's son good friend of mine he went he owns an, an msp a uh, managed service provider for those of you who are not in the tech world and he goes out to a client it was something that literally required you had to be there to fix something and he's on the computer trying to fix it and the guy goes oh you know i have covid right Yeah. I mean he he just looked at the guy and said I'm leaving now. And the guy's like, "Well, but my computer's down." "Well, okay, you have no mask." Right. You didn't inform me beforehand. I mean, you could kill me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, you know, it's the hardest thing to do given where we are, but trying to pull a little bit of the emotion away. So I watched the same story you did on Carmine's and I, yeah. you know, before you go to Hamilton, you, you go and have a big plate of spaghetti.
1: Oh, they're meatballs. Well, but the they fact of the matter meatballs.
0: is, you know, you, you, they interviewed the, um, the the GM and the, and the owner and things and they trained their staff yeah. on this new mandate. And, you know, you're not going to run up against full compliance, but what they never banked on was violence. And so when you get past that, this was somewhat of an edge case. Obviously, the yeah. media is amplifying the edge case partially because that restaurant is world famous. Oh yeah, but, but it's um, it, it's one of those things. Is it going to happen every day? No. Is it ever going to happen again at this particular restaurant? Maybe not. But as the owner now, you're starting to think, do I have to post security at the front, like yeah. a bar would, you know, with a with a, with some sort of you know with muscle. a
1: bouncer and a velvet a
0: bouncer there, you know, if things get animated. The, the three people that jumped in, though, uh, you know, were other waiters and even a customer jumped in to kind of break that up and, you know, as it escalated and things like that. But, you know, it's like we're starting to in our training, in our education, in in the way we think about um, possible outcomes, it's expanded so much because of the nature of where we are today. And, and so many things that, you know, you wouldn't have ever even heard of years ago now start to become you know, possible outcomes. And so is there the bouncer idea where, you know, you're having trouble making money now at the best of times, you know, can I afford another $15, $20 an hour to post through working hours out at the front? And I know that this person will probably be, you know, kind of sitting on their behind for 99% of the time. Or is there a digital answer to this where people have to pre-check in, with their, um, you know, vaccination or, or they have to go through a check-in to make sure they're wearing a mask before they ever reach the hostess. Is there, a, um, you know, some sort of digital order, uh, table um, order for, you know, doing hostess as more of a digital thing than a physical one? It's, is there process changes? that could happen? Or in the end, are we overthinking an edge case that was obviously amplified by media? And as business owners, we've got to think about this because everything has a cost, whether it's a cost of an extra person, an extra piece of technology, extra processes, or the opportunity cost of doing nothing. And if this were to happen again a month from now and that restaurant did nothing to protect that hostess and it happened again, you know, there's the, the branding cost. Right. Of ownership that doesn't care about their employees and doesn't care. So just it doesn't matter what you do. There there's a you know an, an outcome or positive, positive or negative, you know, ramifications to everything now.
1: So in your analytic mind, what would you run through with the owner of Carmines to help them make a decision of to figuring out like the opportunity cost, do we respond to this? Don't we respond to this? What do we need to plan for the next time it happens? What are what are the thoughts or the questions that you would be sort of spurring anybody listening that might have encountered this or be thinking about? What would you say to the owner of Carmines, or yes, or yes. even not just the owners of Carmines? Let me just take that one step forward, the employees and the patrons even, because there's multiple people in there. Forget the press, right? Because they're just going to take something to where they want to take it. Slow news day, big news day, it happens. It's not like Walter Cronkite where he just read it and kept his personal opinions outside, right? That doesn't happen anymore. So, Okay, go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, so as an analyst, the first thing you realize is you don't have the answer. You know, you're, you're not the smartest person in the room here You don't like in this case, I don't know how to run a restaurant. I never have. But my advice to that owner is you're not going to figure it out yourself because it makes no sense to if you break it into logic, what you want to do is go back into your peer groups or your user groups in your industry. There's the restaurant associations, there are obviously media groups, there's events there's all kinds. There's a whole walled garden of community groups of owners and there's millions of restaurants. Right. So there are very well engaged communities of people that are thinking about this every day. They could be a competitor of yours across the street, or they could be across the country in California, which is also going through you know, different things. But, but the point is different people are trying different things. And all an analyst is trying to do is connect dots. For the restaurants here, here and here who implemented these following things, it seems to correlate with this outcome, either positively or negatively. So, again, as you said, the story has so many layers to it with so many people involved and so many things, it all becomes numeric at some point. It's about risk. Obviously, the health and safety of your employees and your patrons and and everyone else is, is paramount. But the risk for the business is that, you know, what is the possibility of reoccurrence? What's the possibility of stopping a reoccurrence you know, before it happens or, or early enough before it escalates. Is it more training? Is it more personnel? Is it more technology? So walking through all that as an owner of a restaurant, I don't want to be spending weeks investigating what could in, in the end be an edge case. Yeah. And I know that the media loves edge cases, but, you know, I've got to come in with a very reasonable and actionable set of tactics and, you know, I may choose by the end, given my peers, given my community, given people that are experts in what they do, along with myself, the answer might be to do nothing. But, you know, making a decision to do nothing is actually still a decision in this right. case. And, you know, you're understanding the ramifications of that, you know, of your brand, of the business, of everything else. And you're just going to make the best decision you can with the information in front of you, but it's not you making the decision. You're going out to the broader audience and getting the most diverse and inclusive set of opinions and set of data that you can to back up your decision.
1: I just wrote myself a note about that something you just said. Making a decision to do nothing is still doing something, and I still think ins- I'll, I I really think that a lot of business owners don't think about that right, at least from my experiences of what I've seen. They feel that they have to do something for every action that happens. For every incident that happens, you have to do something. And I think that's escalated quite a bit with social media, with everybody having a camera. I I recently watched Blue Bloods from season one all the way through. I had never seen it before. And I was recovering from surgery and I'm like, oh, this, this is good. You know, it's brainless and I get to watch it. And it was interesting to watch from season one all the way through as they started bringing in, everybody's got a camera or there's cameras everywhere, you know, from the government side watching everything and, and how that shifted things. And I started looking at what was going on and everybody feels they have to Do something. And what was interesting was on Blue Blood, the commissioner, um, who I just, you know, I love the actor. And since his magnum PI days, sometimes he was like, We're not doing anything. We're not responding. We're not going to give this life beyond the edge protest or whatever. But sometimes you have to make a decision. Sometimes you have to do something because your business is about to fail. Or, you're seeing massive shifts in in your industry have you seen some sort of markers along the way of when somebody needs to go this isn't a moment of no decision this is a moment of i have to do something i have to make a decision
0: yeah so there's a major inversion uh that's happening so one is Every electric car has eight cameras, you know, facing outwards. You know, every house has a ring doorbell facing outwards. Every business every, every telephone pole. The fact is, is this is a surveillance economy, not to mention the four uh, billion people that are carrying 4k class cameras in the palm of their hand. I always said, like, if I was a kid today, you know, I'd probably be in jail, you know, because <laughs> everything I would have done as a kid would be recorded. It's mean, so true. Like when somebody plays ding dong ditch it with us today, which actually happened, we got 4K video, you know, that we can blow up to see uh you know every, you know part of their clothing and everything else. Really
1: somebody just recently did that to you. I mean, yeah, it's very like, obvious. You have an Honor a- Ring
0: doorbell, so we got to send the video to the parents of the you know two, <laughs> and it was actually funny because it was like under, under the same thing like if I was a kid like, I wasn't just playing ding-dong, ditch, you? you? know, I had the bag of poop and I had the, like, yeah. it was, you know, it would just totally change everything for me. But now the inversion that I talked about is this surveillance economy. Everyone has gone to a restaurant at some point and had, you know, a bug in their soup or, you know, something in their salad that, you know, was rotten or something. Like, we've all experienced it. We all give it to the fact that there's just so many moving parts. It is what it is. But now we take out our camera, take a very high res photograph and, you know, we share that to our group of you know, friends on social. And if it's gross enough, I mean, that could trigger another tipping point. Right. So the thing that's happened with the surveillance economy, though, is our attention spans have reached almost zero. What would have been a six month long conspiracy, you know, huge story with legs, you know, a decade or two ago you know, is a 24 hour news cycle today. By the way, that Carmine story is off the news cycle now. There is no follow up. There is no we don't care because we're looking for today's big story. And, you know, this attention span deficit changes for your business owners. You know, this whole idea now that a bug in the soup, you know, could go viral and that would be the end of your restaurant. Well, other restaurants have done much, much worse and they survive a very shortened news cycle and in the attention economy where you think that, you know, everybody saw it, they just didn't. And so whether it's a major in the tech space, like major companies are being hacked, losing all their consumer data and yep. you know your social security number and credit cards are leaked by these big companies that you trust, you know, the targets of the world or the or, or who's doing your credit score.
1: Apple Apple Health and the Fitbits. Oh. and That was the least one with what, 60 million things. So happened. every day
0: there's a story, though. So the news cycle is less. Like, do I stop going to Target now? No, because that news cycle is from years ago now. And I just assume that every other company I do business with has either been breached or will be breached next week. If I stopped shopping at places that you know, had a security breach of some type, I would have nowhere to spend money. And I think that's where we're getting is... The news cycle is so short that the risk of your brand, the risk of ongoing damage is so much less like orders of magnitude less than not focusing on customer experience, that not focusing on your employee experience, that not focusing on delivering quality in whichever business you're in. You know, this journey that the customer is on, getting in those first 28 moments, getting into that retention mode to earn their business on a repeating, never ending lifetime value of that customer. That's where the attention lies. There will be little things that come up or big things that come up along the way. The good news, though, is they're not as dangerous as they used to be or life ending or company ending as as they used to be. You've got to be careful. But again, every moment you spend worrying about an edge case, is a moment you're not worrying about the critical things we just mentioned.
1: As long as your brand or your history is not overloading with edge cases. So focusing on doing the right things and building your business and what you do well needs to always be there so that you can survive an edge thing. I'm thinking.
0: Well, yeah. And by the way, the definition of edge is if it happens more than once, it's no longer an edge case. It's kind of below the bell curve. And delivering low quality or or having something happen repeatedly is a broken process. It's a b- broken workflow. It's a broken uh, set of education or training or skills. I mean, this is th- this is the point of is something, the first time something ever happens, you could say it's an edge case. The second time it no longer qualifies as an edge case. And okay. that's, as a business owner, you've got to, you know, make that decision. And part of the, you know, follow on from Carmine's is this idea of, could this happen again? What are the chances of this happening again? Because if it happened again, you know, again, a few weeks from now, and it hit the national press and New York Times again, now, next time you're going to watch a Broadway show, you might actually skip Carmine's and go eat your meatballs somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of other restaurants in the area I've been to, Junior's, Sardi's, all all the usual suspects and stuff. We don't have a lot of time left for today, but I want to just go a little bit further in this because I can picture my listeners saying, well, with the airlines for decades now, they've been it's no longer edge, right? It's hit after hit after hit. I mean, a validated and on video, horrible things that happen at this point, training should have happened, but obviously they don't want to change the culture or they can't change the culture or they just give lip service to it. Or maybe customers are just going off the charts, but When a lot of small business owners see things like that, a lot of entrepreneurs, they're like, well, we can weather everything. Is it true that every business can weather everything, even if you've changed things? Or is it just somebody like Google or Apple or Delta or United Airways? You know, they're just so ubiquitous to the culture, to the business environment almost too big to fail. But you know, I've seen Eastern Airlines, I'm of that age, I'm 58. A lot of the airlines I flew on no longer exist. Right? So at what point do you have to say, I can fail? Is it something that always has to be in the back of your mind? Or no? It's just expanding a bit on the other
0: thought. Well, I think as an entrepreneur, um, no one can, you know. Be immune to those thoughts. Um, you don't want to spend a lot of time inside those thoughts and trying to figure out the, you know, 500 different ways you could fail. Um, but it's a good example of, you know, when I talked about things outside of your control, the world is more on edge, the world is more divisive, the world is more angry than than it, than it's ever been, and we always know that air travel increases the level of stress. We understand the degree of cortisol and all the, you know, chemicals that get highlighted and you're amped up. You you know, it's just always a moment of higher heart rate and more tension. And, and people are angrier um, when they're on public transportation, and not just flights. I mean, you see it on trains, you see it in buses. Yeah. I mean, just this is a society thing now. So these airlines, I mean, obviously, they're trying to create environments like I think of uh, Southwest and things and trying to you know, levitate a bit and, you know, make a bit more humor and try to lower the temperature. But every day now we're seeing 4K video coming out of some airplane and somebody going off the charts in bad behavior, punching, kicking, screaming, getting duct taped to the seat, you know, abuse and actual harassment and and right down to physical violence of airline crew and having people resign uh, because of it. And, you know, you look back to the airlines and, you know, you you start these edge cases now aren't edge anymore. They're they're happening every day and you've got air marshals and you've got increased security and all the different procedures of you know dropping into that next airport and getting police on board and uh, stop serving alcohol. There, there's been so many, you know, kind of reactive things to try to lower the temperature and you kind of feel for them a little bit because they're serving a different clientele than maybe a restaurant would or a, or a hotel would be. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, they've got this bigger problem. And maybe, you know, the answer is that all of our flights end up costing more money. We start earning some more legroom. We get more employees at the gate to handle kind of the stress. We have a better onboarding. We have more uh, options for entertainment. And maybe there, you know, our cutthroat, you know, I want to fly everywhere for a hundred dollars dipped a little bit too low on the customer experience side to deliver profitably. Right. Maybe the answer is it's $200 and there are some more than, you know, two nuts and a bolt and there, there's a bit more, um, frivolities than, than what a $100 flight would be. But if you raise that bottom bar, and force the market to do that, and maybe you know this is where you talk about regulation and, and things like that as well. You know maybe we have to jump from the bottom, and have the resources necessary as a business owner to elevate the customer experience. the The price of a place uh, plate of spaghetti goes up by three dollars, which funds the bouncer at the door or the technology to alleviate some of these things.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I love that that idea and that concept. I flashed to a picture when I was a little girl, traveling with my mom and my dad and my brother when he was still alive. Well, they're all three in heaven now. It's just me, but we all got dressed up. That was just the way it did. I remember getting on a plane as a little girl in in a dress and white gloves you know you wore gloves and we ha- all had our little hats on and I'm not yeah. saying we have to go back to that but there was certainly a level of civility
0: and they served you a meal you got a fork and knife and a yeah, you know, real
1: fork and knife
0: it was an <laughs> unbelievable experience yeah but given today's dollars that flight was over probably a thousand dollars a person you know given where it is would have been today
1: right yeah the world has definitely changed with that But that doesn't mean that business owners, entrepreneurs can't find a way to provide a fork and knife experience. As you said, adding $3 to something that maybe can just elevate it and smooth out some of the the divisiveness, the anger and some other things that are going on out there in the world. Just wanna give you a a last thought, Jay, what you'd wanna share and also how people can reach out to you because I could talk to you for hours, but I know we have a hard stop, so.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for any business owner, there's really one piece of advice and it's customer obsession. Learning more about what makes your prospect think they need something, whether it's to eat or whether it's a, a product of some type, following them through those 28 moments and figuring out the influence and figuring out how decisions end up getting made, that that vendor selection, the reason they bought from you or came to your restaurant or things. And then understanding that the world is a subscription economy today. Even if you don't sell a subscription product, you're measured and you should be measuring yourself on retention. The same way we measure Netflix should be the way you're measuring your business.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, you talk about product. Since my gallbladder surgery, I've been drinking smart water and I swear it's making a difference. It has electrolytes in it or whatever. And I I first discovered this product and the whole customer experience when they stopped allowing us to carry water through the gate you know into the thing and they had a sale on this and I was doing a cross-country flight and I bought a bottle of it and I noticed that my legs didn't swell as much and my brain functioned better on the flight back I didn't have any of it didn't make you know same thing kind of happen so I just started drinking it on airplanes and I had less issues right what is it about smart water I don't know I, I you know, I, I, know they have electrolytes in it. I don't know if it makes that big a difference. Would I love it if they sold it in a way that I didn't have to buy all this plastic? That would be really great. But I've become a fan of the product. And it's way better than drinking some of those sugary, fruity, artificial, chemical electrolyte drinks. So customer obsession is finding out who your customers are. Mapping the 28 points, as you said, to understand your relationship with them. And I I also loved, you talked about our opportunity cost on the show today. We talked about making a decision to do nothing is still doing something. And then you raised one other point. It becomes numeric at some point. So when you start putting all the data together, you will have a sum. And you have to decide what you want to do. With that, what's the risk of working with that data and with not working their data? So, as always, Jay, you blew me away. I have a page of notes here. <laughs> How do people again reach out to you if they have questions or they want to follow you and follow all of you? Uh, you're all over social media, and I read everything you put out there. So,
0: yeah, I respond to everything: Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, I have my own personal blog at jaymcbain.com. I have my uh, business blog at Forrester, so either type me into a search window or in, into one of your social networks, and I'm happy to respond to your message there if you want me to chase down one of the numbers or what, how it might apply to your industry or apply to your type of business. Happy to help you.
1: That's awesome. And by the way, we have a milestone here today. This is my first LinkedIn Live. I just got approved to stream live to LinkedIn, and you are my first guest. <laughs> I think, I, think, I, was it. First,
0: I, think <laughs> I was your first guest on Restream as well. So I think, I think you were too. Exactly. So
1: it's just like lots of firsts when I deal with Jay McBean, the world-renowned right. futurist. <laughs> next time,
0: Next time you have a first of something, I will be back.
1: All right. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I hope you took lots of notes, everybody. But if you didn't, you can get the recording of this on everywhere podcasts are found um, on YouTube as well. If you want to watch the video, if you're listening to this on podcast, and you wanted to see Jay's face as he was talking, you can find it uh, anywhere that I've live streamed, including LinkedIn Live. Remember to keep customer obsession in the forefront of your mind and map that journey as jay talked about if you missed the first episode with him july of 2020 you'll want to capture that one as well remember at the end of the day the right questions can change your life so what are you asking today have a great day everyone
0: you've been listening to it's all about the questions starring laura stewart Connect with Laura at It's All About The Questions dot com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.